Welcome to Crossword, where cultural clues lead to the truth of the word. My name is Michelle McAloon, your host. You can find my podcast and other great Catholic radio programming on archangelradio.com. Today, we're going to talk about what has become a great American blood sport, talking about the news. We're with author Dr. Jeffrey Bilbro to discuss his most excellent new book, Reading the Times, A Literary and Theological Inquiry into the News, published by IVP Academic, an imprint of InterVarsity Press. Dr. Jeffrey Bilbro is the editor-in-chief of one of my favorite online journals, Front Porch Republic, and associate professor of English at Grove City College. He is also the author of Loving God's Wildness, The Christian Roots of Ecological Ethics in American Literature, and Virtues of Renewal, Wendell Berry's Sustainable Forms, and co-author with Jack Baker of Wendell Berry and Higher Education, Cultivating Virtues of Place. Welcome, Jeff. Well, thank you, Michelle. I'm very excited to talk to you today. I'm super excited to talk to you because the news is so front and center of just about everybody's attention. And it seems like it's been that way for the past decade, two decades, probably with the advent of CNN. Why this book now at this particular time, at the end of the pandemic in the middle of 2021? Yeah, well, of course, as you know, books uh, have a, a, a longer gestation period, uh, an essay or something. But so I've been working on this explicitly for a couple of years, and I guess kind of the groundwork for the better part of a decade. I, I'm sure that many people who, you know, read all the stories in the newspaper, but then they went ahead and paid their taxes, right? You can stay informed and then, then do very little about it because you don't know what to do. And obviously Thoreau's, maybe not obviously, but Thoreau's kind of posture of political activism was very influential on people like Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr., who saw in his civil disobedience, his essay on civil disobedience, possibilities for effecting actual cultural change. So I think we can be sort of deceived into thinking that if we are informed about everything that's going on, we are making a difference and we're posting the right things on social media. But sometimes strategic withdrawal enables more redemptive participation, enables us to be, to actually have something worth saying in public, and maybe even more importantly, have the imaginative and spiritual resources we need to envision what we might be called to do in response to the events of our day. How do we practice what you call redemptive modes of reading the news? Yeah, I mean, it's hard, right? And I, and I don't think there's sort of a three-step process, but I do think that there are some helpful models. And I, tr- I try to point to those people, you know, Christians from across the ages who have done this in their places who then might inspire us to, to envision how to do that in our place. But I think part of it is if we can root our imaginations and our lives in God's word and in the sort of Christian vision of reality, and then read the news from that posture rather than vice versa. You know, if we can let our imaginations... And so I I talk about some examples of novels and paintings that I think help us toward this stance. But if we can engage with what's going on, not as, you know, members of a political tribe or avatars on our social media sites, but as people who belong to our church and who are rooted in God's word, and then are also trying to discern how God might be working in the events of our day and how he might be calling us to to act. And it's not going to be this, you know, we shouldn't expect that it's the same for us as for our neighbor or for people in other 
congregations, right? That's one of the great mysteries and gifts of the body of Christ, that there are many members who have different callings and different responsibilities. We'll get to it a little bit later in the interview, but you talk about the the value of place. And I have not heard anyone else say that. I come from a very highly mobile life. My father was in the military. I've been in the military. My husband's in the military. And wow, I think you're right on about that. Why is news junk food? You know, you talk, I thought that was a great analogy. We eating a Big Mac, but drinking a Diet Coke on the side, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah. And, and since my book's come out, somebody else has, has a, I've looked at this other book, I haven't read it yet. I've got it on the way, but I think it's Brett McCracken has a book called The Wisdom Pyramid, where he takes the food pyramid and kind of re-envisions it for, from a theological perspective in terms of what kind of information, what our information diet consists of. So yeah, I think that's a helpful way of understanding and thinking through, uh, I guess, the volume and the the flow of information that we that we engage with. You know, it's not to say, just like the food pyramid, it's not to say that you can never have, you know, read an article about your sports team or whatever the case may be, or, but what's the, what's the preponderance, right? What's the main diet that you're feeding your mind? And is that going to be going to promote a healthy intellectual and spiritual life. Right. And one of your antidotes too, is to learn a craft. That's great. I mean, to get, and again, that gets you, that's an embodied experience in your life. It really is. I've, you know, personally for myself, I've started reading the daily readings, the Catholic daily readings. And I try to think about those during the day, how I'm going to act during the day, how I'm going to look at things through the gospel message, through the Psalms, through the uh, readings of the Old Testament. And and it actually brings me into line a little bit. Sometimes it doesn't, but but you have to use a lot of imagination on it. Yeah. Your second section on time, and you go into a lengthy explanation about the difference between Kairos, I think you pronounce it, or Kairos, and Kronos. How do you pronounce that? I think Kairos, but my Kairos. Greek is not great. <laughs> So Kairos versus Kronos. What is the difference? What are they? And what is the difference between the two? Yeah, well, news, obviously, the the term we have for this phenomenon relates to time, right? Something that is new. And so really the only thing that connects all the things that appear on the front page of the Washington Post or the BBC is that they're happening now in Kronos time. And so Kronos time just names the, the kind of, you know, time as quantified duration, what's happening right now. But, you know, the other cultures and all humans have had other ways of experiencing time, the phenomenon of time. And so I draw on this other Greek word, kairos, that refers to the kind of seasonal or patterned mode of time, time as kind of dramatic or yeah, patterned recurrence. So that, you know, the time that we, we can think about this in seasonal terms, the time that we plant crops is spring. And that's one way of understanding time. We can think about this in liturgical church terms. I think it's Charles Taylor who says that uh, Good Friday, uh, 1998, is closer to the events of the Passion than, you know, Midsummer Day in 1995, right? So Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Not just it's not just something that's close sequentially, but close kairosly. So think, and the news, of course, privileges Kronos. The news invites us to inhabit time merely as, you know, historical unfolding, historical progression. But Christians have an obligation to also inhabit time as this, this sort of pattern of God's engagement with creation. 
And so learning how to negotiate that tension, I think, is crucial to learning how to properly value and understand what's new. You have brought out a great point that I never, ever thought of. The call of the prophet is to call God's people to respond to the news of their day by the light of God's eternal word. We kind of, in modern society, think of a prophet as somebody who can foretell the future, who can read the tea leaves. And if you think about that statement that you made, you're absolutely right. They were not foretelling the future, except maybe in a couple instances, but they were not foretelling the future. They were looking at what was happening in their day and in their time through the word of God. So someone like Jeremiah is as fresh and relevant today because his troubles were as big as our troubles are. They were just there. And you know what? They weren't even that different. Sin is sin. Sin is boring. Sin is repetitive. And so he was having to look at his own set of problems, his own set of sin through the perspective of the here and now. And he chose to interpret that and was given the gift to interpret that through the word of God. And he wasn't even, he didn't even volunteer for that. He didn't really like that at times, <laughs> but that is a great way of looking at the prophets. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. And it's uh, not original to me, but I do think it's helpful to think about the prophets as, as kind of caught between these two times and trying to help their hearers who might be, might be fixated on, you know, in Jeremiah's case, the, the political tragedy of exile and uh, loss, try to help them reinterpret their their events and their situation in light of God's eternal word. And so to the extent that, you know, Jeremiah is calling his listeners to to root themselves in God's promises and God's character, well, then, of course, yes, as you say, he will be continually fresh and, and he will predict the future in some sense, right? Because God uh, is the same yesterday and today and forever. So there is a sort of predictive aspect, I suppose, but it's not uh, the primary function of the prophet. It's also, you know, an opportunity that Christians have today still to uh, to cultivate a poetic, uh, sorry, a prophetic mode of engaging and responding to the news. And that might be badly needed in a culture where we can too often think that the prophetic consists just of, you know, seeing how we can regain political power or how we can push the culture wars toward what we, well, how we imagine God's kingdom and God's victory looking rather than, you know, the, the, doing the hard work of seeing how might, how, how might God's word be calling us to repent today and taking out the beam in our own eye before we gleefully point out the moat in our neighbor's eye. Oh, absolutely. And what you're talking about really is power how we yeah. can have power over somebody else. And what is the most noxious, most addictive drug to the human being? It is power. We yeah. cannot resist it. We cannot live without it. We constantly have tried to gain it. And that is what I think a lot of the news cycle is and how we read the news. We read it through the paradigm of power versus reading it through the paradigm of redemption. So. Yeah. That's a great point. You you talk about Eric Aberbach's book, 1946 book, Mimesis. I've never heard of that. Tell us a little bit about that book. Yeah, I mean, it's a kind of, a, it's a weird book. It's a scholarly book that he wrote while in Turkey in exile from Germany. It was a, a German Jew scholar and left during the rise of the Nazis. 
And it's a book about how Western literature has represented reality. So it seems broad and not very germane to my topic. But what I think is relevant is his discussion of how the incarnation, how Christian, the the sort of spread of Christianity reshaped how people imagine the significance of everyday life. And in some ways, the news is a kind of, uh, is is a creation of Christianity because the good news is a radical change, right? Something happened in history uh, that changes how we understand everything else. And so in the wake of that, as, as the Christian gospel kind of filtered down into people's imaginations, people started to revalue everyday life and and normal people. And so the kind of pinnacle of that, I suppose, for Auerbach is Dante, who, you know, finds popes and kings in the afterlife and his journey, but also, you know, his college roommate, uh, his just right. normal everyday friends. And there's a lot of people in the Divine Comedy whom Dante speaks with who weren't important people by the standards of kind of classical culture, but were important because they too were eternal beings uh, living their lives before God and the things that happened to them had eternal significance thereby. So Dante, for Auerbach, Dante represents this pinnacle of finding a way to value everyday life and value the news of our day through divine revelation. But then Auerbach talks about how kind of in in the wake of Christendom, an alternative mode of valuing everyday life uh, came to prominence that situates people in the sort of arc of history and kind of replaces the Christian revelation uh, and takes out the Christian revelation and puts in various versions of historical progress as the standard by which to judge the significance of contemporary events. And I think it's that kind of secularized, historicized vision of significance that uh, shapes much of contemporary understandings of what makes something newsworthy, I guess. Right. And that's that progressivism is material progressivism that we think because we've got running water and our ancestors didn't, then we are better off than they are, where actually maybe they were closer to the word of Christ. Maybe they were closer to God. Maybe they had better and stronger communities and not running water. So this arc of progression, material progression that is now termed as success in every economy in the world, actually, is it's questionable if that is how we are interpreting the news and how we're interpreting progress. I always contend we do not have an anthropological problem. We have an eschatological problem in our society. And one of the ways you say to touch upon that eschatology is the liturgies of Christian time, is to understand the days of the saints, to understand the feast days, the liturgical seasons. And these liturgical seasons are very tied in with our Physical seasons, absolutely. Uh, so we have we have bright celebrations in the winter time when we need it the most. We have great feast days in the winter or in the summer months when when food is abundant. We have Lent and fasting during a time where the earth is not abundant, and that is a great way of marking time. I think even marking time through the resurrection every week. Marking every Good Friday, marking Holy Saturday, the joy of Sunday, and keeping the Sabbath. These are ways of marking liturgical time on 
a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, and on a year. And when you look at eschatology, when you look at the next world, this world seems to be less important. The next thing you move on to is community. And you talk about the public sphere. What is the public sphere? You say there's three features of the public sphere. What is the public sphere? Yeah, so I, I think it's also, and this gets to the, the point you raised earlier about belonging, right? When, where and how do we belong to each other? And so I'm trying to briefly sketch how the news invites us to imagine that we belong to each other in kind of a particular relatively shallow way. So I draw on people like Charles Taylor to talk about the public sphere as this metatopical, secular mode of discussion where, where we, you know, this is what you talked about earlier with like the national conversation, where we imagine this national or even global conversation that we all participate in. But the way the public sphere is set up, it privileges certain kinds of topics and certain kinds of uh, ways of relating to those topics. So it encourages us to imagine ourselves as belonging to each other through through economic modes of relation or through our participation in this shared moment, rather than say, as an alternative, shared religious commitments or our our participation in a, a sort of eternal church Catholic body. You talk about the media reconfiguring our social belonging, and it does reconfigure our social belonging. And a lot of that has to do with place, too, that if we don't belong close to each other, then we don't belong. And you see the communities on Facebook and you see the communities on Twitter and people have interest in each other, but it is not the same incarnated community. It just isn't. And even even this interview where I'm we're doing it through video, it would be a different interview if we were in person. You talk about atomized swarmers and social belonging. And I love that about what you say about atomized swarmers. Uh, what is that? Yeah. So uh, drawing on some other contemporary sociologists, I suggest that we can't really belong well uh, primarily in the public sphere, and that if we try to find our communal identity in these public modes of discussion, then we'll become atomized swarms. So we'll be like, you know, individuals who are kind of isolated and uprooted from our embodied commitments, briefly joining ourselves to these other iso isolated atomized individuals and swarming around particular topics of interest. But it's really difficult to promote lasting change or redemptive engagement with anything when you're just an atomized, part of an atomized swarm, right? When you're not really belonging to each other. Uh, in an essay that Barry wrote, Wendell Berry wrote back in the 70s, he talked about the tendency of political movements uh, in, a, in an age of mass media to become simply fads. I think the examples he gave were the Vietnam War, the, the civil rights movement, and then primarily for him, the ecological crises and how when we approach these as sort of fads or topics that we can kind of latch on to as swarms, it's easy to kind of point our fingers and say, this is a huge problem and, and get all riled up. But nobody wants to actually do the hard work required to bring about real profound change. So I, I think recognizing the tendencies uh, of our media ecosystem to uh, encourage you know, outrage and kind of anger, but not actually 
personal or, or public even change is important to then turn away from that and seek out more lasting and formative kinds uh, of ways that we can belong to each other and contribute together toward the kinds of redemptive participation in our shared life that uh, that we might be called to. Yeah, and absolutely. You talk about belonging to place. And when we belong to place, we have a stake in it. So we care about if water's good. We care about if the garbage is picked up on time. We care about the immigrants in our community. And we become highly mobile. And I do believe that has been as disruptive to us as much as the news and the media, that we do not invest into the place where we live. I was just reading about the Benedictine monks. When they go into a monastery, they are there for life because they understand the value of place. I think maybe we could benefit from some of that lessons. I myself have moved more often than I would want to. And I know you can test that there are all kinds of reasons why people are moved around the world, right? So I don't want to you know, say that, that moving from place to place is always inherently bad, but there are costs. We uh, relate differently to people when we're newcomers and we've only been there for a few years or even a few generations. And I think recognizing how the need to be- find identity and belonging in a public sphere can often stem from an absence of a belonging in a placed local sphere can help us to identify some of the unhealthy dynamics in that public sphere and maybe seek to redirect our attentions toward our local places where, as you say, there's there's more opportunities for shared work, right? We can, we can agree that, that the stream needs to be cleaned up in our town because we all value its water. So we might disagree on issues around sort of global climate change, but we can find common cause and common agreement about local pollution issues often more easily. So that's the kind of redirection that I guess I'm suggesting in that section. Okay. You talk about redemptive publishing and faithful joining. We've sort of talked about faithful joining, but what do you mean by redemptive publishing? Yeah. Well, people like yourself, right? Or like me with the Front Porch Republic. I mean, I don't want to say that all forms of participation in the public sphere are necessarily doomed to failure. And so I look to some people who I think really belonged to their local or embodied communities and then tried to participate in the public sphere from those commitments, right? So they knew who they were and they knew who they belonged to and what they cared about and what they were called to be. And then they tried to enter into the public sphere. And I think that is a more healthy model for, for speaking in public so that we're speaking not as isolated individuals, but as members, members of community who are responsible to people whom we care about and belong to. So I, I talk about Frederick Douglass and Dorothy Day, uh, but I also point to several other publications and people who, who I think kind of exemplify this, this way of entering the public sphere on the basis of these prior communal commitments. But what you said is very important, that you have to know yourself. You have to know your community. You have to know. And again, that comes from being in community, being in in an incarnational, embodied community. And that is the only place where we truly get to know ourselves. We do not get to know ourselves in the public sphere. We right. get because the public sphere is not personal. It is not loving. It's only in our small communities of family, parishes, congregations, schools that we get to know who we are 
through our love of another, through those who love us. And that is, it's so, so important. This was a great book. It was a really good book. You brought up some really good points. And I think you've got a great future ahead at Grove City College. Your questions certainly indicate that you've wrestled with these ideas. So I appreciate that. And I appreciate your uh, your sort of summaries and the, the ways that you tied the threads together, because that, that helps me. It gives me hope that uh, I was able to communicate what I was after well. Oh, absolutely. This book's important. And I only podcast important books. So this was, <laughs> this was an important one. We've been speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Bilbro, author of Reading the Times, A Literary and Theological Inquiry into the News, published by IVP Academic, an imprint of InterVarsity Press. Where can we find your book or where would you prefer people to buy your book? You can find it on IVP's website. I always like recommending Bookshop too. If you're in the States anyway, that's a good place to look for it at local bookstores. But I think okay. it's around all kinds of book sites and shops. This is a book that's worth buying and it's a book worth sharing. So go out and get this book. It does. It makes you really think about what we're doing in following the news. How can we do this in a more intentional way? You've been listening to Crossword, where cultural clues lead to the truth of the word. My name is Michelle Macklin, your host. You can find my podcast and other great Catholic radio programming on archangelradio.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Michelle Macklin one. And Jeffrey Bilbro, thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us out of your busy summer schedule. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay. And we'll see you on the Front Porch Republic, right? Okay.